Hi, my name is Prisha. Welcome to the Focal Point Podcast. I am delighted to be joined today by a leading contributor to responsible, ethical, and sustainable trading practices, CEO of the Fair Trade Foundation, Michael Gidney. Thank you very much for joining us, Michael. Thank you for having me. Hello. So what does the Fair Trade Foundation do exactly? Fairtrade Foundation is a charity. We are about, we're just over 25 years old. And we look after the fair trade mark in the UK, which you may see on products in supermarkets. There are now 5,000 fair trade products available in the UK. Bananas, coffee, tea, sugar, spices, cosmetics, small-scale minerals, mining, gold, platinum, all kinds of different products. Um, and the point of fair trade is to guarantee a better deal for the people at the sharp end of global supply chains. So the farmers who grow the bananas, the artisanal small-scale miners who pan for gold, the people who are just too often out of sight and then out of mind. Globalization has brought many really fantastic positives to the world, but it's also created losers. You know, globalization can create long, invisible, or at least untransparent supply chains where we just don't know what's going on at the other end of the supply chain. Uh, They can be exploitative, um, and these supply chains can make the planet dirtier and people poorer. So what fair trade is all about is tipping trade on its head, look at the bottom of the supply chain, and looking at ways of making trade work for everybody, particularly the most marginalized. So as an example, um, we work with, uh, well, actually we work with 1.7 million farmers and workers in 75 countries in the global south. But for example, um, we work with uh, cocoa farmers in Honduras, um, and they have been subject to uh, enormous challenges in the last few years. Really low global pricing, which means that actually often they don't get enough from their sell their produce to even make ends meet. So they're trading at a loss. But then they've also been hit by numerous climate disasters. There have been at least two major hurricane events in Latin America in the last uh, 12 months, which have just wiped out their crops. So so we work with producers like that to enable them to get a better value from their trade. So fair trade has a, a minimum price guarantee. So you as a farmer will always get the minimum price. If the world market price goes above that, you get the better of the two. And then your community, your cooperative or whatever, will also get an additional premium on top. So that's basically working capital for those communities. And they use that to become more resilient and to withstand the the shocks of globalization. It really works. And the, the thing which is so fantastic about fair trade is it's incredibly simple. You just pay a bit more money to the farmers um, and and that we check robustly to make sure that they adhere to environmental and social and economic uh, standards. But for a shopper, all you need to do is just to look for the fair trade mark. That's brilliant. Um, you actually spoke about the pros and cons of globalization. So just to touch upon that a little more, uh, what is your stance on fair trade versus free trade? You know what? Free trade um, is is a deeply political um, 
uh, conversation because I don't actually believe there's any such thing. Uh, the concept of free trade in theory is great, of course, that we should all be able to trade freely amongst, amongst uh, trading partners around the world, of course. But it conveniently ignores the fact that there are huge economies and small economies. There are big, rich countries and smaller, less rich countries. Um, and we have to recognize that imbalance. So it would be ludicrous for the European Union, you know, the world's largest trading bloc, to believe it could enter a, a, a free trade agreement with Malawi, which is the fourth poorest country in the world, on an even playing field. You know, where the economies of scale, the social safety nets, the, 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 the health care and employment protections that are available in, in the EU are just not available in Malawi. So you need managed markets. Um, and I don't think you can have free trade or even make progress towards that sort of mythical idea unless you have really good rules. You need rules. And fair trade is all about rules. So as much as we are really working to support farmers at the, at the sharp end, you know, those first tier producers, we're really strict. You know, we have, fair trade has very strict environmental, social and economic standards. If you don't adhere to them, you will be suspended. If you carry on not adhering to them, you will be decertified and, and taken away from the system. So you need good rules. And isn't that just like a football match? You know, you, you need a referee. You need somebody to be keeping track to make sure there's not bullying. And there's been too much bullying by rich countries over poor countries over the last 300 years. And we need to find a way of stopping that. So it's very evident that the Fairtrade Foundation is doing a lot to make sure that this cause is served. So what are the main goals in the future for the next few years for the Fairtrade Foundation? It, it's so simple, really, but it's so complex as well. At least it's such a long-term thing. We just want trade to be fair. And it goes back to this, this question, your question of, of free trade. You know, as I say, <clears throat> at the moment, free trade is a myth. Um, but it's an ideal, right? We should try and find a way of working towards that. But the only way you can do that is if you recognize, I think, really two things. <clears throat> Mostly, global trade is still exploitative in terms of price. Right, that's your first problem. So there is enormous inequality in the world. Inequality is growing. Um, rich companies get richer, while people who are producing goods don't get richer. In very many cases, they get poorer. Let me I mean, talk about one example, coffee. We've been working with uh, coffee farmers for more than 25 years. The global price of coffee is at, at the moment around about a dollar a pound for a pound that, in terms of weight. Now, that's way below the cost of sustainable production. So coffee farmers in Central America, Latin America, Africa, South Asia, will be earning on the global market less than it costs them to grow the crop. That's beyond crazy for a couple of reasons. First of all, beyond crazy because it's a humanitarian disaster. You know, it's, it's, it means that enormous populations around the world um, are just subject locked into that site that poverty trap but it's also beyond crazy because as consumers we spend more on our coffee now than we ever have you know we love going and getting our we, we love the difference between a kilimanjaro and a machu picchu we get our expensive lattes and decaf pumpkin spice whatever um, and if we are prepared to spend as much as we are now on a, a, on a posh cup of coffee, how can it be that farmers who grow the beans that go into that coffee are not even able to make ends meet? So there's a huge moral imperative there. If we love our coffee, we cannot, we cannot tolerate this. We cannot have coffee beans brought to us by farmers who are so exploited. But the second big reason, I think, that we need to tackle this 
and thinking about where we go in the future is looking at climate change. So the climate crisis is obviously affecting us all, but it's affecting farmers hugely already. So as as I was saying earlier, fair trade works with 1.7 million farmers and workers around, around the world. And pretty much the climate crisis is top of the urgent list for all of the farmers we speak to. They, they're seeing it every day. You know, their harvest patterns are changing because weather patterns are changing. Coffee farmers, using that example, are having to go higher up the mountains because coffee is an altitude crop. They're having to move their farms higher up the mountains to get, you know, to get the available uh, optimum uh, growing levels. But according to, well, actually, there's a bunch of different studies, but a bunch of different UN studies as well, saying that on current projections, the area of land available for coffee production by 2050 will have halved because of the climate crisis. If we don't tackle this, then we are not going to be able to enjoy bananas and sugar and coffee and tea and all of the other products that we take for granted every day. We're expecting farmers just magically to adapt, you know, to mitigate against the climate crisis and magically adapt. And at the same time, we're subjecting them to endemic chronic poverty. So how can you adjust your farming practices if you don't even have the money to make ends meet on existing practices? If you're poor and you have no money, then you will buy cheap, the cheapest possible insecticides, the cheapest possible uh, pesticides or, or, or fertilizers, and you'll pollute the land on your farm, not out of choice, but out of force. You have no other alternative. If you get a little bit of extra working capital, which is what fair trade is all about, then you can invest in your farms. If you know you're going to get a guaranteed minimum price the following year, you can take that financial risk, invest in your farms, improve the irrigation systems, work more naturally with the soil, invest in setting aside areas of your land to experiment with with climate resistant strains of new crops, invest in nurseries, seedlings, all of these kinds of things. Um, The Hondurans I was talking about earlier, as an example of people we work with, uh, Honduran cocoa farmers have used their fair trade premiums, that extra money, to uh, plant over 100,000 trees to to create shade for the cocoa trees, but also to, to lock in nutrients into the soil to create carbon sinks. Fantastically expert specialist things they're doing. But they, they couldn't do that if they have some money up front to be able to invest. So for me, the climate crisis and the social crisis of poverty come absolutely together. And we need to recognize farmers are on the front line, but they're also our secret weapon. They are experts in land uses. They are stewards of our land. And if we can just enable them through giving them a fair price to do what they know needs to be done, then we will make fantastic progress on the climate crisis too. Equally, if we don't, then we're in real trouble. Yeah, I agree. It's ironic how farmers who have such a low carbon footprint are more adversely affected by climate change. Yeah, there's also, you know, on that one, there's there's also the political sort of structural scandal of this. So, you know, the global north are the polluters, broadly speaking. The global south was not the polluters. So so the, the average British person has a climate footprint more than 14 times greater than the average Ivorian farmer. So we, we are the polluters. Um, it is politically completely wrong for the polluters to expect those who were not the polluters to pay for the cleanup. And, you know, we're looking at the COP26 talks that are going to happen in Glasgow in November. 
And there's a big argument still about, you know, levels of, of, of carbon emissions and carbon reduction required by different member states. And here, one of the, the big challenges is the UK, in looking at our own, our own carbon emissions, we're only looking at domestic emissions. We're not looking at the emissions in the supply chains of goods imported into the UK. But actually, around about 15% of the food and drink we consume comes from the global south from developing countries or poorer farmers. And, and we are expecting them magically to have sorted out their own carbon emissions. But actually, we have a responsibility there. They're only growing these things because of colonial structures in many cases. And we need to get out of that colonial mindset, surely, for once and all, and actually look at, look, look at farmers as equal partners in tackling the, the problem. And of course, they are, they are more expert than anybody in looking after the land. So moving on, we have addressed the fact that it's so important that farmers actually earn this extra money and how it's actually so useful. But what about uh, the fact that there is still price competition in, as a default in economies? How do we make sure that we break away from this so that farmers earn the money that they deserve? It's a really good question. And I think the answer is to see farmers as business people not beneficiaries or charity cases the biggest mistake in the sort of the international development sector is to think of farmers or any client group as being passive beneficiaries you know so so in, in fair trade we we absolutely don't do that fair trade is co-owned by the farmers um, we have <clears throat> three continental producer networks latin america asia and africa and collectively through those networks that the producers own the system the organization in fair trade and so they really set the pace they set the agenda they set the the direction they set our priorities that's part of the reason why we're focusing so much now on the climate crisis is because producers have told us that's what they want us to do so we're very not just responsive to farmers but actually led by farmers so in terms of competition i think all of the farmers that I've ever spoken to actually want to be competitive. They don't want a, any kind of preferential treatment. They just want to be able to compete on a level playing field, which means that the kind of subsidies that the richer economies of the world pour into their production you know, is deeply unfair. For many years, there were scandals about, for example, cotton subsidies, you know, the, the uh, US government paying cotton subsidies to, I think, about 20,000 cotton farmers in the US which distorted the market and made 10 million cotton producers in West Africa uncompetitive. You cannot have that kind of subsidy, but equally you have to provide protection. So there is, there is a, a, a um, we've done it, you know, the UK protected its economy until we found competitive advantage. The EU did it, China did it, the US have done it. In, in terms of the, the liberalization agenda at the WTO, we just have to recognize that you're not going to Pick another, you know, pick a country like Malawi again, as I was talking earlier. Malawi will not be able to go from a substantially agricultural society to an IT-based economy in five years. You know, these things take time. It takes a hell of a lot of investment, um, skills development, um, and it takes substantial donor funding, and it takes patience. So what we do in fair trade is the farmers run the thing. Um, they, are, they, they drive the interventions that we make. Um, we are in, absolutely responsive to them. We do not, fair trade does not do things to farmers. Farmers pull the initiatives they want. Um, and that means they start to build their own sense of their own competitive position in their own marketplace, in their own uh, part of the supply chain. 
And, and there what you see, which is really brilliant, is farmers who may have joined fair trade in a sort of as an unorganized small farmer. You know, I'm a small farmer on my own. Working with fair trade, they become organized into groups, cooperatives. They help to find that helps them find their economies of scale. They learn from each other. There is a huge amount of investment in training, good agricultural practices, tips and techniques around climate mitigation, for example. But then what you see is once they start to capture more value from their trade by trading on fair trade terms then they start to want to move up the value chain to get into processing where even more value is captured so in paraguay sugar smallholders who have been involved in fair trade for some years used some of the money they were getting uh, additional money from fair trade to build the country's first sugar mill part of the problem in the sugar processing is the mill owner captures most of the value um, and the mill owner sets the price. So if the farmers themselves can have their own mill, they can cut that out and they can become more competitive. But they did that themselves. And also you'll see farmers who, who want to diversify out of just primary production. So they're not just a commodity producer. They're a much more uh, balanced social enterprise. And that's they're doing. That's fantastic. And I'm mean, going back to what I said before. Farmers know what they're doing. They just need they just need a level playing field. So to sum up this very engaging interview, actively committing to social justice might result in trade-offs for economic agents, such as whether this is like low profits for companies or lower salaries for the employees that work in them. So with this in mind, what words of advice or encouragement do you have for university graduates who are passionate about engaging in social justice, but are perhaps unsure of their career prospects in the field? Um, I would say the trade-offs are, it's becoming less and less of an option. So if you just, if you were chief executive of a big multinational company, you don't have that many options. Um, and it's, if, if it isn't the scandal of poverty in your supply chains, which is going to make you act, it's going to be the climate crisis. And as I said, these two things are coming together. So if you are one of the world's biggest coffee companies or one of the world's biggest cocoa companies, what I was just saying earlier should resonate with you that by 2050, most of the land that is current, or at least up to half of the land that is currently farmed will not be available for farming. So... A big company like, like Nestle, you know, it, they need cocoa beyond 2050. They need cocoa for their entire business model if they want to keep making, you know, Kit Kats. Um, so it's in their interests to respond to the climate crisis. And in terms of these trade-offs then, those companies that choose to ignore what's needed and choose to exploit their supply chain, choose not to help farmers mitigate by paying them to be able to do so. Those companies will become an investment risk. You know, investor communities increasingly are starting to look at the long-term sustainability strategies of big companies before they put their investments there. And when pension funds and institutional investors like insurance companies start to pull their billions out of your company, your share price collapses and your business is dead. So smart companies are, are waking up to this, which is why someone like Ben & Jerry's, which is owned by Unilever, um, are paying more than the fair trade minimum price even for their cocoa because they want to make faster progress. So there is an enlightened self-interest about this. What I would say for your listeners who are thinking about careers, 
If you're thinking about a career in the private sector, check out the sustainability ambitions of the, of the company before you go for those interviews. Or when you're in the interviews, you make sure you ask those questions. If, you're, if your employer doesn't have a good sustainability plan, one that really rings true, then it's likely to be greenwash. It is unlikely to be a long-term bet. It's also unlikely that the culture of the company is going to be forward-thinking enough to captivate and motivate talented young people. So I, I would say now is the time for you to ask really demanding questions. And I would also say you can be a campaigner wherever you work. You know, you can, and that's what, as I say, what's one of the wonderful things about fair trade is you can just pick up a coffee from Greg's when you go to work and you know you're making a difference. You can choose the world you want every day, whether it's in the company where you work, whether it's in the sector you choose. I would warmly encourage anybody to think about working in, a, in an NGO like Fairtrade. It is so brilliant to be able to bring your values, your whole person to work, because I work in a place where, where my values, my personal values and my employer's values connect. And that's, that's glorious. But as I say, it doesn't need to be in your workplace. It can be in your home. It can be the way you, just the way you shop. And we all have that chance to, to help create the world that we want to see. That's brilliant. Thank you for your time, Michael. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Well, your work you is Yeah, your work is inspiring a new generation of change makers and I'm sure our listeners can take away a lot from this interview. So, um, with that, I would like to conclude this episode. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time.